Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the sacrament. Now, this was a fireside I put on for my ward uh, just a few days ago, and I hope that you'll find this interesting. As we talk about the sacrament, there are three thoughts or ideas or principles I wish to cover. Those three are the symbolism in the sacrament, the covenant of the sacrament, and the power of the sacrament. So let's begin with the symbolism. If we think about the Aaronic priesthood, we have the deacon, the teacher, the priest, and the bishop. Now, the deacon passes the sacrament. He offers the bread or water or body and blood of Jesus Christ to those in the congregation. In a sense, he stands in the place of the Savior and offering the sacrament to each and every person. Now, the teacher prepares the sacrament. They get the the table ready. They get the cloths out. They get the trays out and place in it the bread and the water. In this way, they act in the place of the Savior. Well, how about the priest? The priest blesses the sacrament. He essentially places every member in covenant so that as they prepare to take the sacrament, they can renew those covenants made at baptism. And what about the bishop? The bishop oversees the sacrament to ensure that it is done properly, that it is done in a way that is according to the way the Savior would have it done. Now, do we recognize as we look at the deacon, the teacher, the priest, and the bishop, and then if we go back to the New Testament in the Book of Mormon, when the Savior himself implemented the sacrament, do we recognize that he carried out all four of those responsibilities? That he prepared, that he blessed and break it, that he passed it to his disciples and apostles. Do we also recognize that the priest stands in place of each of us. Well, how does he do that? Well, think of this this way. Each of us live in this life 
this probationary state, this mortal probation, a life where we make mistakes, where we fall short, and where the Savior keeps asking us to keep trying. Now, think about the priest giving the sacrament prayer. Sometimes he gets it wrong. Sometimes he makes a mistake. Do we tell him to stop and, sorry, we'll excuse you and ask someone else to do it? No. The bishop gently shakes his head no, and the priest gives it another shot and tries again. Just as each of us, because of the Savior's atonement, need to keep trying and repenting when we make mistakes, getting up, dusting ourselves off, rolling up our sleeves and trying again. Do we see in Luke chapter 20 to 11, where the scriptures say, And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat my Passover with my disciples? The Savior sent his disciples out looking for the guest chamber. What is the guest chamber? In Jewish laws and customs, there are lots of rituals they must perform. Because these rituals involve some space, the Jews, in their homes, as money and space would allow, would make the guest chamber the nicest and most spacious room in their home. Do we consider and do we recognize that the chapel inside of our buildings is the guest chamber? It is the nicest room where we go in our ward building to perform those sacred rituals and ordinances. Do we recognize that the chapel is this holy room, this holy guest chamber that the Savior used to participate in the Passover and implement the sacrament. Now let's consider for a moment the bread. In John six fifty four through 58 Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him As the living Father hath sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Do we see that? That if we were not Christian, and if we didn't know anything about Christianity, and somebody came up to you and said, The God I believe in, we need to partake of his flesh, and drink of his blood, and in so doing have eternal life. We would run away as fast as we could, but this, once we understand it, is beautiful and deep. As we partake of the Savior and His atonement, we are filled and have eternal life. The Savior here related it to the manna that Moses received from Heavenly Father for the Israelites as he led them out of Egypt to Israel. But rather than eating the manna and living for a while until one got hungry again, He that eateth of the bread of life shall live forever. Do we recognize in him number 181, in the second verse, where it says, While of this broken bread humbly we eat, our thoughts to thee are led in reverence sweet, bruised, broken, torn for us on Calvary's hill. Thy suffering born for us lives with us still. Do we recognize it as the bread is torn for us? It is symbolic of the Savior's body being torn for us on Calvary's hill. Do we take time when the sacrament hymns are on to listen to them, to hear the words that are in there? Because if we did, we might recognize that much of those things that we hear would carry with them the Spirit and would certainly be considered Scripture. Now, let's think about the water for a moment. In John chapter 4, verse 10, 
Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked, have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And then there's John seven thirty seven through 39 In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And then how about Doctrine and Covenants 63.23? But unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give thee the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water, springing up unto everlasting life. Recognizing that wine was first used and that today we use water, do we act, do we understand this, this symbolism behind the water and why perhaps the Savior is very easy to allow this change in the sacrament to use water instead of wine? That this water, the Savior's water, which represents his blood or atonement is living water. And again, as partaking of it, we shall have eternal life. How about the sacrament table? As we look at the sacrament table all prepared with the bread and water on it and then the top cloth covering it, what does the table represent? It represents the altar of the Lord. And as we look at that altar of the Lord that contains his body and his blood, essentially his sacrifice or atonement laid upon the altar, do we look at the bread trays and water trays underneath the cloth and almost be able to make out a body underneath that cloth? That essentially it is the Savior who lays upon that table, his atonement laid upon the altar. Now, two things I want to add that we shouldn't be sticklers on, but that we should understand the principle behind. A lot of times we talk about how the deacons, teachers, and priests, and the bishop, for that matter, should wear white shirts when participating in preparing and passing the sacrament. And while that rule really isn't a rule, right? We look at the handbook, of instruction. And the handbook of instruction says that we should not require any priesthood brother to wear a white shirt in order to pass the sacrament, that it is not mandatory. So we don't enforce the rule. If we're short someone to pass sacrament and there's a young man with a blue, a blue button down shirt on instead of a white shirt, then we welcome him to pass the sacrament. But, but we certainly would want to remind, remind people that the wearing of the white shirt is symbolic of the white clothes we wear at baptism. And that if our goal is to help make the sacrament as reverent as possible and to help others to see the symbolism behind the sacred ordinance, perhaps we ought to at least consider throwing that white shirt on before we go to church on Sunday morning. The second is our covenant hand. In Jewish custom, the right hand is the covenant hand. Most of the time you'll notice the Aaronic priesthood holding the trays of water and the trays of bread in the right hand and the members in the pews passing it with the right hand. And while passing with the left hand is not wrong or or prohibited, it certainly would at least be a reminder that the right hand is the covenant hand. Let's talk for a moment about the covenant of the sacrament. We recognize that partaking of the bread and water, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, is a renewal of our baptismal covenant. So let's turn to Third Nephi, chapter 18, 1 through 2. It says, And it came to pass that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should bring forth some bread and wine unto him. 
And while they were gone for bread and wine, he commanded the multitude that they should sit themselves down upon the earth. Now, do you think the Savior could have planned ahead of time so that his disciples were ready and had the bread and wine ready to go? Well, sure he could. Let's talk for a moment about the covenant of the sacrament. Do we recognize that the renewal of our baptismal covenant, this re-cleansing of ourselves, occurs every time we take the sacrament? So, what is this covenant of the sacrament? Let's begin by reading 3 Nephi, chapter 18, 1 through 2. And it came to pass that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should bring forth some bread and wine unto him. And while they were gone for bread and wine, he commanded the multitude that they should sit themselves down upon the earth. Now I ask you, could the Savior have planned better and had the bread and wine ready to go by the time all the people were there? Sure he could have. But there seems to be some purpose in this. So he sends his disciples away to bring forth bread and wine. And in the meantime, he commanded the multitude that they should sit down upon the earth to do what? To prepare themselves for the sacrament. When we go into the chapel, we find a seat. We sit ourselves down. And we prepare for this, for the sacrament or the covenant which is about to take place. Now I want to share the prayers in reverse order. We do the, pre- the bread prayer first and we do the water prayer second. But I want to read to you the water prayer first and the bread prayer second so that we can begin to pick out the differences. Here's the water prayer. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this water to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy Son, which was shed for them, that they may witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they do always remember him, that they may have his Spirit to be with them. So the promise we make is to always remember him, and his promise is to have his Spirit to be with us. That is the context of the covenant we make with the water, or blood, of Jesus Christ. Now let's read the bread prayer. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of Thy Son, and witness unto Thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and keep his commandments which he has given them, that they may have, that they may always have his spirit to be with them. Amen. So there's the bread prayer. Now the promise here is different. While the promise on God's end is the same, that they may always have his spirit to be with them, and actually there's even a difference there. The water prayer says that they may have his spirit to be with them, The bread prayer is that they may always have his spirit to be with them. But the promise we make on our end is much different. Rather than promising to always remember him, we promise to be willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, to always remember him, and to keep his commandments which he has given us. And by doing so, we may always have his spirit to be with us. So what is the covenant? So we talked about this just now, right? The water and the blood. We will always remember him. He promises if we do so, we'll have his spirit be with us. The bread prayer, his body, we take upon us the name of his son willingly. We always remember him willingly to do so. We always are willing to keep his commandments. 
and he promises his spirit to be with us. How does this covenant work? You see, this is like a marriage relationship. It is a covenant relationship. And just as Stephen Robinson pointed out, Stephen Robinson in his book, Believing Christ, gave the example of him and his wife getting married. He said he was broke. He had a negative uh, balance in his account. And his wife had a large positive balance in her account. When the two of them got married, they now together had a positive balance. Now consider this. The Savior is infinitely perfect. We, in this earthly life, are finite and imperfect. But when we covenant with Christ in this covenant relationship, we borrow his perfection and, in a sense, are perfected in him. When we do that, do we? does that make... When we start to understand that process, then all of a sudden, Ether 12.27 comes alive. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto them in weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Do you see, by being yoked with Christ, he takes our negative balance and makes it infinitely positive. It also makes sense when we consider Moroni chapter 10, 32 through 33. Yea, come unto Christ, and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace you may be perfect in Christ. If by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. Do you see? Once we covenant with Christ, and we live up to our end of the covenant, then he in turn, through his grace, can make us perfect in him. Let's talk some more about this covenant. Let's talk a moment about willingness. In the bread prayer, we talk about being willing, that we are willing to take upon us the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and keep his commandments which he has given them. I propose, and I want you to think about, I propose that the word willing applies to all three parts of what we're being asked to do in the sacrament. It is not that we are willing to take upon us the name of of his son, and then separate and distinct from that, we will always remember him, and we will keep his commandments which he has given us, but rather that we are willing to take upon us the name of his son, that we are willing to always remember him, and we are willing to keep his commandments which he has given them. And if we consider it in that context, then a couple of scriptures begin to stick out to us. The first one is in Mosiah chapter 18. Mosiah 18 reads, this is verse 8, And it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. And now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as a witness of God at all times, and in all places, and in all things, that ye may be in even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord, as a witness before him that ye have entered into a covenant with him, that ye will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you? I don't believe 
the willing only applies to the parts that are directly connected to it. So, for instance, it says, desires to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens. So that's clear, right? And then it says that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn. So the willing certainly applies to those two. But I also believe that willing applies to the very next statement after the comma, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and then again, and to stand as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death. That as you read that sentence and you consider what he's saying, if you were to think about it in our terms, if I said, I am very likely to try tomorrow to go grocery shopping, to fill up my car with gas, and to make myself a sandwich for lunch. Do we see how I'm prefacing all three with the things I will try to do? And that the trying to do wasn't just for the first one, but it was for all three. I think that applies here as well. And I think once we start to see that, the the prayer on the bread begins to make more sense. Now, to take that one step further, Third Nephi, chapter 18, verse 10. Let me explain before I read this. When I first started to come upon my thoughts on the doctrine of Christ and to think about grace and works in their role, I began to pick out certain words. They just stuck out to me very much. So when, as, so as we were in sacrament meeting or going through the bread prayer, I began to see this word willing. And then I would go to Messiah chapter 18 and I saw the word willing. And I thought to myself, that word, if it has the importance I think it does, then we should hear it directly from the Savior himself. And then I come across third Nephi chapter 18 verse 10. Just as the Savior is implementing the sacrament and as that process of the sacrament is completed, Verse 10 says this, And when the disciples had done this, Jesus said unto them, Blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done, for this is fulfilling my commandments, and doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. In other words, that those who partake of the sacrament are willing to keep the commandments that he has given us. The willing certainly, from this scripture here, from the Savior's own mouth, applies to keeping the commandments. Now, let me take this another step further. If my promise in the sacrament is to keep the commandments perfectly, which is what it says if we don't apply willing to it, I promise to keep the commandments, and if I keep my promise, he promises that I might have his spirit be with me always. Now, the problem is, is I'm imperfect, and I sin, and I fall down, and I don't keep commandments perfectly. So, The Lord has no responsibility to bless me with his spirit always. But if we change that and begin to understand it as the word willing applies to it, and I come to sacrament meeting every Sunday, willing to keep the commandments. And when I fall short, I repent. And then if I do that, the Lord blesses me to have his spirit always. All of a sudden, I am in a covenant that I can keep. And then it applies the fact that I'm not only judged by my effort to keep the commandments, I'm not only judged by the actuality of doing it, but I'm judged by the desire of my heart. Now, if we go to Preach My Gospel, chapter 2, there's a section that says resurrection, judgment, and immortality. It starts off saying, when our bodies and spirits are reunited through through the resurrection, we will be brought into God's presence to be judged. We will remember perfectly our righteousness and our guilt. If we have repented, we will receive mercy. We will be rewarded according to our works and our desires. 
You see that? It's not just works, but it's also desires. Then again, it preached my gospel, and it says this several times. I'm only sharing two of these. Same chapter in the sections Kingdoms and Glory. During our mortal lives, we make choices regarding good and evil. God rewards us according to our works and desires. So where does this come from? Because it's in the scriptures too. Doctrine and Covenants 137 verse 9. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. So yes, we are judged by what we do, but not just what we do, but what we do based on what is the desire of our hearts. Now, there was a general conference talk given by Elder Dallin H. Oaks, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, in April 1985, titled, Taking Upon Us the Name of Jesus Christ. In this talk, Elder Oaks focuses on just this first commitment in the bread prayer. He is not addressing the second two. But in addressing the first part of taking upon us the name of Jesus Christ, he talks specifically about the use of the word willing and willingness. Let's go to him now. It is significant that when we partake of the sacrament, we do not witness that we take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. We witness that we are willing to do so. The fact that we only witness to our willingness suggests that something else must happen before we actually take upon us that sacred name in the most important sense. Willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ can therefore be understood as willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ. According to this meaning, by partaking of the sacrament, we witness our willingness to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and to receive the highest blessings available through the name and by the authority of the Savior when he chooses to confer them upon us. According to this meaning, when we witness our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, we are signifying our commitment to do all that we can to achieve eternal life in the kingdom of our Father. We are expressing our candidacy, our determination to strive for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. When the priest offers the scriptural prayer on the bread at the sacrament table, he prays that all who partake may witness unto God the Eternal Father that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son. This witness has several different meanings. It causes us to renew the covenant we made in the waters of baptism to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ and serve him to the end. We also take upon us his name as we publicly profess our belief in him and as we fulfill our obligations as members of his church and as we do the work of his kingdom. But there is something beyond these familiar meanings because what we witness is not that we take upon us his name but that we are willing to do so. In this sense, our witness relates to some future event or status whose attainment is not self-assumed but depends on the authority or initiative of the Savior himself. Scriptural references to the name of Jesus Christ often signify the authority of Jesus Christ. In that sense, our willingness to take upon us his name signifies our willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ in the sacred ordinances of the temple 
and to receive the highest blessings available through his authority when he chooses to confer them upon us. Finally, our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ affirms our commitment to do all that we can to be counted among those he will choose to stand at his right hand and to be called by his name at the last day. In this sacred sense, our witness that we are willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ constitutes our declaration of candidacy for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Exaltation is eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. That is what we should ponder as we partake of the sacred emblems of the sacrament. As we do so, we glory in the mission of the risen Lord, who lived and taught and suffered and died and rose again, that all mankind might have immortality and eternal life. Of this I testify in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose witness I am. Amen. Do we see from Elder Oaks that his use, his understanding, his explanations of the word willingness help us to kind of solidify how this word willing is used in the prayer? That we're not essentially promising, I want to explain this right. We come to sacrameting each week making an absolute promise, right? That in our heart we are, we are going to keep the commandments. That we are going to remember him always. That we are going to take his name upon us. But on Christ's side of this covenant, he is holding us accountable to our willingness and our effort to repent and to strive and to keep getting up and to keep trying. He is measuring the desires of our hearts and our works. Now, let's consider for a moment the power of the sacrament. Third Nephi, chapter 18, verse 4. And when they had eaten and were filled, he commanded that they should give unto the multitude. And when the multitude had eaten and were filled, he said unto the disciples, Behold, there shall one be ordained among you, and to him will I give power, that he shall break bread and bless it, and give it unto the people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. And it came to pass that they did so, and did drink of it, and were filled. And they gave unto the multitude that they did drink, and they were filled. And I give unto you a commandment, that ye shall do these things. And if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye for ye are built upon my rock. Now that's Third Nephi, chapter 18, verse 4, 5, 9, and 12. So the Savior implements the sacrament in chapter 18. And at every step along the way, those who partook were filled. Now were they filled because they sat down and ate till they couldn't eat anymore and drank till they couldn't drink anymore? No. But spiritually, they were filled. Now, Third Nephi, chapter 20, the Savior implements the sacrament again starting in verse 3 and then moving to verse 8 and 9. And it came to pass that he brake bread again and blessed it and gave to the disciples to eat. And he said unto them, He that eateth this bread eateth of my body to his soul. And he that drinketh of this wine drinketh of my blood to his soul. And his soul shall never hunger nor thirst, but shall be filled. Now, 
when the multitude had eaten and drunk, behold, they were filled with the Spirit. And they did cry out with one voice and gave glory to Jesus, whom they both saw and heard. What were they filled with? With the Spirit. Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He not only starts our faith, he finishes it, and he finishes us. He is our finisher. He gives us the finishing touch. We are the ones being finished. We are the ones who are being changed to become like Christ. Let's turn now to John chapter 6, verses 48 through 58, and listen to what the Savior has to say about the sacrament. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now, let's start to work towards a conclusion. We need to recognize that the sacrament is split up into two parts. There is the bread and there is the water. There is his body and his blood. He is our Savior and Redeemer. He both sanctifies us or changes us to be like him and justifies us or cleanses us to stand before him. Once we see that there is a twofold process going on, then it makes perfect sense that the sacrament is split up into two parts with two different promises. First, the sacrament cleanses us. Doctrine and Covenants, section 27, verse 2. For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, when you partake of the sacrament, if it so be that you do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. Do we see that? The Savior himself splits the sacrament, not only into two parts, bread and water, but into two purposes. His body was laid down for us, and his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. Now, going to Mosiah chapter 4, verse 3. This isn't speaking of the sacrament, but I want you to recognize the feeling of being cleansed, and this same feeling certainly applies to our cleansing in the sacrament. Mosiah chapter 4, verse 3. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins, and having peace of conscience because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ, who should come, according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. Now, turning to Elder Oaks, a quote from him, he says, 
We are commanded to repent of our sins and to come to the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and partake of the sacrament in compliance with its covenants. When we renew our baptismal covenants in this way, the Lord renews the cleansing effect of our baptism. In this way we are made clean and can always have His Spirit to be with us. The importance of this is evident in the Lord's commandment that we partake of the sacrament each week. So the sacrament, first, it cleanses us. It makes us clean. Just like at our baptism, we are washed all over again. We become justified through the sacrament. Now, the sacrament also sanctifies us. Elder Christofferson, Elder Christofferson, in talking about the sacrament also sanctifying us, says this, The process of cleansing and sanctifying through the baptisms of water and of the Holy Ghost can be continued weekly as we worthily partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. See, he makes this connection back to our confirmation as well and speaks about how the sacrament touches these two ordinances and then helps us in the process of both being cleansed and being sanctified. Doctrine and Covenants 59.9 says, And that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. That's from Doctrine and Covenants 59.9. And then the comment is made, Honest and faithful adherence to the spirit of the Sabbath day will assist us in the process of sanctification. Now, touching on this changing power that the sacrament has, let's turn to Elder Donald Halstrom from his General Conference talk, Converted to His Gospel Through His Church. This was given in April 2012. Focus on the ordinances and covenants. If there are any of the essential ordinances yet to be performed in your life, intently prepare to receive each of them. Then we need to establish the discipline to live faithful to our covenants, fully using the weekly gift of the sacrament. Many of us are not being regularly changed by its cleansing power because of our lack of reverence for this holy ordinance. See that? The sacrament has the power to change us or sanctify us that we might be more like the Savior. In today's episode, we have talked about the symbolism of the sacrament, the covenant of the sacrament, and the power of the sacrament. May I conclude by sharing a thought that while the Savior suffered in Gethsemane for our sins and died on the cross to complete that process and was buried in the tomb and three days later rose, just as that tomb is now empty, so might we, by the power of the sacrament, be filled. I bear witness that just like the prodigal son coming home to his father, that if we will utilize the atonement, that if we will be willing to be both justified and sanctified, and to repent as we fall short, we too might come back to our father, having been changed to be like him and his son. In the sacred name of my Savior and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy 
never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Here I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed His precious blood That day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above